If you'll start making your way back to your seats. Making your way back to your seats. And as you do, you can open your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We're continuing on in our series through uh, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, a series that's entitled The Word Made Flesh. And this morning we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 13. And so I know you were just seated, but when you've uh, arrived there, I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's Word. Verse 13. Listen to what John records. He says, he was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. And this morning, I want us to consider this idea Don't miss Jesus. Don't miss Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we open your word to hear from you, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. You would shape. I pray that you would give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Don't miss Jesus. In 2003... Uh, a man named Patrick McGinnis coined a new phrase. Some of you uh, might have heard it. It's actually now in modern English dictionaries. And the phrase is FOMO. Now, Patrick McGinnis, when he coined this phrase back in 2003, he was a, a business student at Harvard. And he started to notice a trend among some of his classmates. In the wake of 9-11, with technology advancing, the newly beginning social media craze, he began to notice a trend where people were developing habits. People would, he noticed that they would go to that party that they really didn't want to go to, but they went just because they didn't want to miss out if something happened. He noticed that his classmates would go to events and concerts that they had no interest in whatsoever simply because their friends were going, their classmates were going, and if something happened, they didn't want to miss out. But McGinnis' extraordinary sense of guilt about it. They would beat themselves up over not being a part of whatever that thing was, and they would make patterns and shifts in their life in order to make sure that they didn't miss out on anything again. And while, while that term, FOMO, may have been coined in 2003, the idea is not really new because some of us know what it's like to have a fear of missing out with my friends and being really bored, but I didn't want to be the first person to leave. I didn't want to be the one who went home because I didn't want to miss out if something cool happened with my friends. But in more recent days even, this fear of missing out is the reason that so many of us wake up and the first thing that we do is scroll through social media. We want to be in the know. We, we want to know what if something happens on social media and we don't see it. We, we want to be in the know. We don't want to miss out on important things. But here's, here's my thought. Here's why I tell you all of that here at the beginning in this introduction. 
I wonder, I wonder if in our attempts to always be in the know, I wonder if our fear of missing out on what could, I wonder if, if our looking for something greater causes us to miss out on the great things that are actually happening now. If looking for something better causes us to overlook what is already best. And as I read these verses, even as I, I read them again just a moment ago, I get this sense that as he's introducing Jesus and the Word made flesh, I, I get the sense that in verses 10 through 13 and specifically, it's John's aim, it's, it's his concern that we wouldn't miss Jesus. He doesn't want anyone to miss him. It's almost as if verses 10, in 10 through 13, John is using the failure of some as a warning and the, and the recognition and response of others as an encouragement, all with the purpose. I think that's a good reminder for us even this morning in the midst of the hustle and bustle of the holiday season. Does anyone else, maybe it's just me, feel like it's more stressful this week than it was last week? A couple people. It's like as we're getting closer the stress is amping up for a host of different reasons. In the midst of this life, in the busyness and solving and the solutions being offered, in the midst of tears and laughter, no matter what you encounter in life, this season or any season, the, the concern of John rings true for us. Don't miss Jesus. And in these four verses, 10 through 13, Reject Jesus or respond to Jesus? And remember, John's already told us why he's writing this gospel in the first place. Do you remember John 10, 30, and 31? It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe his name. John doesn't want anyone to fail to see who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God, the Word made flesh, and our only hope for salvation. So as John writes these three verses, as he writes verses 10 through 13, he is not focusing simply on the incarnation anymore. All right, so John's not just thinking about Jesus over the entirety of Jesus's life from birth till his resurrection and ascension, and he's reflecting on how people have responded to him in this life, and he's taking stock of all that Jesus has done, and he comes to two options. He says there are really only two responses people have had to Jesus. They've either rejected him or they have, they have recognized him. I just want to draw your attention to and flesh out a little bit these two responses that Jesus mentions. And hopefully we can learn a few things along the way with the grand goal being that we would not miss Jesus. Here's the first response that he gives. John, John mentioned with me. It says he was in the world and the world was created through him and yet the world did not recognize him. The world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So as John, on those who left back, those who rejected Jesus and failed to believe that he was who he said he was and that he did and was doing what he said he did and was doing, 
But notice what he says there in verse 10. He says, he was in the world and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. There in verse 10, you you see that John was in the world that he created. And the world that he created did not recognize its creator. I mean, you got to kind of stop and catch the irony of that statement for a minute. The fact that the, the word made flesh came into the world that he created and his very creation failed to see him for who he was. But in some sense, right, this shouldn't really shock us. God in the Son of God when He dwelled on earth. Because a failure to recognize the glory of the Creator has been mankind's problem since the fall. Do you remember what David says in Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2? He says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of His hands. Day after day they pour out to each night after creation testifies to the fact that there is a God who has created this world and there is a God who is active in this world, but the world missed him. This is the problem that Paul addresses in Romans 1. It's, it's, it's actually as if Paul is recounting this as being the height of human sinfulness when he records this in Romans 1 verses 18 through 23. Righteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Here it is. I want you to catch this. Paul says, since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. Paul goes on, glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. The world has rejected God. We see this today. Again, it shouldn't be shocking to us. We see, a, we see a world that places hope in health, in security, in money, in relationships, in possessions, all the while missing out on the one who created all of those things. People worship gifts rather than the giver of those gifts. But what I would contend is even more dangerous than that is there are some, probably most, who worship. We see it all around us. I was thinking through a couple of examples that I could use here, and, and these two kind of came to mind. You know, right now, I don't know if you're aware of this, there's a, a court case pending in the Supreme Court that has the potential to overthrow the 1973 decision of the court in Roe versus Wade. Now, people on both sides are feverishly making their cases, right? Uh, States. And so right now, there's a case that could overthrow that. But people are making their arguments, they're making their cases. It's all over the news. But as I was reading about it, there was one argument that stood out to me. And it's, it's not a new argument. I've heard it a thousand times before, but it just hit me a little differently as I was thinking through John 1, verses 10 through 13. The argument goes something like this. This was actually the argument that was made, but it's been made a lot of different times and ways and similar, with similar words. But here was the argument, what they can do, what they can and cannot do with their body. But then this is what they said. Humans are autonomous beings. The problem is that's only true if there is no creator. 
Because the problem comes in that there absolutely is someone who can God has spoken. But even beyond that, we see it in the current discussion of gender, where we, we've relegated the body, right? The body that's made by God in the image of God to nothing more than a shell which contains our minds and reasons. And the way that the argument goes is that the body has no intrinsic value. It's all about our mind and, and, and our intuition and our reason and rationale is. The person, based off of their mind and their rationale and their intellect, get to determine who they are and what they want to do. And so if the body does not get to determine sexuality, then the individual does. But again, this is only true if there is no creator. Because God has explicitly communicated how he made man and woman. What trying to get at is that this rejection of the word made flesh that John saw by the world then is the same rejection that has plagued humanity since the fall. Where we want to determine Whatever we want to determine. We want to be God. But I want to be clear. John is not writing in such a way as to make light of that rejection of the creator by the creation. It's not as if John's saying, he is trying to highlight just how devastating this rejection is. Going back to Romans, after Paul makes that case in Romans 1, he says this in Romans 1, beginning in verse 28. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do greed and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they even applaud others just to see is that the rejection of Jesus by the world results in death. Not just physical, but spiritual death as well. Now let me just add this as a side note. This is why we proclaim Jesus. Because we live in a world that has failed to recognize that God loves this world came so much. That Jesus came to save those who reject him and are in open rebellion against him. That's God's love. And the world needs to hear this message. But for John, the rejection goes even deeper. Because notice what he says in verse 11. So in verse 10, John, John recounts how, how the world rejected Jesus. But it gets even more devastating in verse 11. Receive him. And what John is referring to here is the Jewish people. Jesus went to his own, to the Jewish people, and they rejected him. And you may be thinking, well, why does John single them out? Well, I think there's a lesson here for us as well. Listen, Jesus was rejected by the people who claimed they were looking for him. Think about it. These were God's chosen people. These were the descendants of Abraham. They cared about the law. They cared about the Old Testament. They knew the law. They knew the Old Testament. They knew the, the prophecies. And sometimes I just, I mean, I read that and I just wonder how in the world did they miss it? I mean, take just the prophecies of the birth of Jesus in the Old Testament. How did you not see these fulfilled in Christ? It was prophecy Jesus. 
It was prophesied in Isaiah 11.1 that the Messiah would come from the royal line of David. That's Jesus. It was prophesied in Isaiah 7.14 that a virgin would conceive a child and, and his name would be Emmanuel, God with us. That's Jesus. It was prophesied in Micah 5.2 that he would be of the tribe of Judah born in the town of Bethlehem. That's Jesus. King Herod's massacre of the children was prophesied. That's Jesus. When Herod was killing children. Jesus' family fled to Egypt until it all died down, but it ultimately fulfilled the prophecy of Hosea 11, 1, that when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. That's Jesus. Just the prophecies of his birth should have been enough for the people of God to say, there's something different about this Jesus. And yet they rejected him. In Isaiah 53, verse 3, That this Jesus would be despised and rejected. A man of suffering. He would be like someone people turned away from, despised and devalued. But why? Why? Was it because they were destined to do it? Because there's that very question for us in the next chapter of John. In John 2, verses 23 through 24, it says this, Now when he, that's Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Listen, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. See, Jesus knew the propensity of mankind. The propensity not to worship God in flesh, but to worship what they think God should do for them. Here's what I'm getting at. What Jesus' own people wanted mattered more to them than what Jesus was actually doing. How did they miss him? Because what they wanted him to do, they wanted a political ruler to deliver them from Rome. They wanted a savior with all the fanfare and celebration of an earthly king. They wanted a warrior who would kill their enemies, not one who would be killed by his enemies. And what they wanted mattered more to them than what Jesus was doing. Now, I said there was a lesson for our natural tendency. My natural tendency, even when I was preparing this, is to think, how could they have missed it? With all that was said before, with all that was prophesied, all the things that Jesus was doing and revealing to about himself, how could they miss it, those fools? But I, I wonder how many of us are looking for a Jesus and a God to do what we want more than we are looking for a king to surrender to. Listen, it's one thing to have a theological understanding of what God is and who God is. It's one thing to have a theological understanding of the Word made flesh. It's another thing to surrender your life to. Some of you may be in the fire of life right now. Life is not going how you thought it would go. There are some circumstances and some situations and some seasons in your life that you want God to change and you believe you will not be happy until he does. What if, while looking for Jesus in the next season, you're missing him in this season? What if while looking for Jesus in the relief, you're missing him in the pain? And what if what you want matters more than what Jesus is actually trying to do? 
Because here's the thing I know. There have been times in my life where I, and it led to more pain. There have been times in my life where what I thought would bring me the most happiness, I got. And it turned into some of my darkest seasons of despair. But there has never been a moment when I have trusted what Jesus has doing and he let me down. And if the Christmas story, the word made flesh, teach, it is best. He may not show up how you think is best, but when he shows up, it's always right on time and the right way. And ultimately, the people of God miss Jesus. They missed what Jesus was trying to do. They missed why Jesus was coming at all. And as a result, they missed salvation. They missed salvation. It allows us to reflect. Here comes the good news. Not everybody missed him. Because here's the second response that John wants us to see. It's Jesus received It's Jesus received. Look look at verses 12 and 13. It says, But to all who did receive him, he gave the right name who were born, not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. Not everyone missed him. And what, what I want you to see, and this is fascinating to me, is that these two verses, verses 12 and 13, They are the focal, these verses, 12 and 13 are the focal point. Everything in verses 1 through 18 builds to these two verses. Let me me try to show you this real quick. I'm going to nerd out a little bit. So some of y'all will like this, some of you won't. I don't care. I'm the pastor. These 18 verses are written in what we would call a a chiastic structure. And, And what what chiasms are, they're not unfamiliar to the, bother, by, uh, to the Bible. It's, your thing. it's used a lot specifically in the Psalms. It, it's, it's basically a literary device and a, and a way of pointing out and emphasizing a point. And what it does is it follows a structure. I'm going to show it to you in a minute. It follows the structure of A, B, C, C, B, A. Okay? And, and John writes verses 1 through 18 in a chiastic structure, let me, let me show it to you here. So you, you see it up there on the screen. It's all right if you can't. That, that's, that's point A. And that actually links with verses 16 through 18, the very last two verses. So those go together in how John is writing this. So verses 1 through 5, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. That through another, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. And then you see that verses 6 through 8 correspond to verse 15. 9 through 11 corresponds to verse 14. But what's interesting is that verses 12 through 13, these two Verses. And maybe that's not as interesting to you as it is to me. And if you want to look at that further, I'll give you a printout of it. Like, I was pumped when I saw that. I came to, Aaliyah can attest to you. I came to her this week and I was like, babe, did you know? My wife's cool too. So she was like, really? That's awesome. 
Like she was in it too. Some of y'all are like, okay. But anyway. <laughs> it might not be interesting to you, but regardless, it's telling us something. It tells us that, that while John wants us to marvel at the fl- fact that the Word was made flesh, it's not, it's not the focus. It is that the Word was made flesh born of a virgin in a little town called Bethlehem for a reason. And here's the reason. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of the will of the flesh, the will of man, but of God. For those who recognized who Jesus was, who believed in what believe that his death and resurrection were for the forgiveness of sins. To them, he gave the right to be children of God. That's our hope right there. We could spend weeks on these two verses, but, but for the sake I want you to see first, it says to all who did receive. It's a reminder to us of what we just talked about, that not everyone does receive. Not everyone does recognize, not everyone responds to Jesus in faith and repentance. And we cannot forget that Jesus coming into the world is only good news if we believe that Jesus kings. It's only good news if we place our faith in that. Because if we don't, it's the means by which we will be judged. We are without excuse. But this is more. John's pointing to a reception that is more than just a mental recognition with our minds. It just didn't come saying that he was a guy you should know some facts about. He didn't just come saying that he was a guy that you should study in theology classes or in small groups or on Sunday mornings. No, no, no. He was a man, God in flesh, who came and said that he was Lord of Lords and king of kings. He either is or he is not, but if he is. But I want you to see this. It says, but to all who did receive, he gave. He gave. We cannot forget for a moment that what Jesus did for us coming into this world, living the perfect life that we should have lived but we can't, and dying, it is a gift. It is grace, and we did not deserve it. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not from works, so that no one can boast. Can we be honest for just a minute? It's easy to feel entitled, isn't it? I, I don't know, I expected more of a hearty amen there, but maybe it's just me. So let me talk to me real quick for a minute. It's easy for me to think that Jesus owes me something. Especially, especially after we've walked with Jesus for a while. It's easy to get into this mindset that somehow along the way in this walk of faith, the authority shifted. And though I needed Jesus, and sometimes it's subtle and we don't even realize it, but where we think that Jesus works for us, right? It's easy to get in this mindset of, of I mean, Jesus, do you, do you remember how good I've been at reading my Bible? 
Do, do you remember? Are you paying attention to how much I've prayed? Do you remember all those people I told about you? Jesus, do you, do you remember how many people I'm discipling? Not realize how much family time I sacrifice to write these sermons to preach every week. Clearly, you owe me something. But oh, brothers and sisters, the only thing that you are owed is death. It's death. God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, or he gave. It's grace. And here's the third thing I want you to notice about this. It says, he gave what? The right to be children of God. You have a right to it. Now you may be thinking, hold on, Michael, how, how are you going to say that? You just told me that it was grace and I deserve nothing, but now you're telling me I have your right, and it is a right to be labeled as a child of God, is a right you have not because you've done anything, but because of what Jesus has done for you. It is based not on the sufficiency and holiness of your life. It is based on the sufficiency of Jesus' life, his death, efforts, not by your works, not by anything you have done or could do. It is established because of what Christ has already done, and it is a right. I mean, it's evident even in how we receive that right, isn't it? Look at verse 14. It says, who were born. Not of natural fear. In John 1, he begins to throw out this statement that is somewhat mysterious on first hearing. It's not so much because we've heard it so much. But John says, you're, you're not born by human means. Now, can you imagine people reading that for the first time? What? what how else can you be born? No, this is a birth. Yeah. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus asked the same question. How in the world can someone enter into their mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus says, no, 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 it's not that kind of birth. It's a birth by water and spirit. It is a birth that doesn't come from this. But that word is significant. That word right, that he gave us the right. Because it carries with it an authority. That word in the Greek is exousia. And it means right or power. And so what John is trying to communicate is this right that you have, you have a boldness as you claim this right. It's not a boldness that we have in and of ourselves. No, no, no. It is a boldness that is ours because of how sufficient our Jesus is. Paul says it like this in Galatians 6, 14. But as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross, and I, children of God, ought to bring you such hope and such joy. It's because you and I will struggle in this life. And I'm talking specifically about with our faith. We will have seasons where we doubt that we are God. 
We will have seasons where, where we question whether what we believe and of uncertainty. And if you haven't had those seasons, you will have them the longer you walk with Jesus. They come, don't they? Can we just admit, like, I as your pastor have doubts at times. I have been preparing sermons for you out of great seasons of doubt. Am I wasting my time on this? But here's the good news. The power and the taken by your doubt. Because it has never depended on you. It has always depended on not the sufficiency of your faith, but the sufficiency of the word made flesh. Therefore, when things are at their worst, when we are at our worst, We can say, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, including me and my doubt, will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Your right to be a child of God is because we have a sufficient Savior. And there is hope in that. Seasons are hard. There is hope when life makes no sense. And that hope has never been dependent on us. It's dependent on Jesus. The Word made flesh. The one who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius. rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And when we receive this Jesus, we have hope. So let me end by saying this. If you are here this morning and you are a believer, and you are struggling, I don't have the fix to all your pains. But what I can offer you is a hope that will endure in the midst of it. And it's the fact that Jesus Christ is a sufficient Savior. That our right to be children of God is based on His work and not yours. He lived the perfect life. He died three days later. He ascended into heaven and He is sitting at the right hand of God. He's sitting not because He's tired but because the work is done. And so when life doesn't make sense, rest in your sufficient Savior. But if you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus, let me one else. There is no thing in this world that will bring you the joy and the happiness and the satisfaction that your soul is longing for. But Jesus... Jesus is enough, and he loves you so much that even though what we celebrate at Christmas is the fact that Jesus came, and this fact testifies to God's love, for God so loved the world. He so loved you that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The Word made flesh. Don't miss Him. Don't miss Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... God, we just want to pause for a minute and marvel at Your love for us.
when we rebelled, you loved us. When we rejected you, you love us. When we doubt, you love us. When we question, you love us. When we have those moments where we believe that you have forgotten how to be loving, and what we celebrate at Christmas testifies to us of just how amazing that love is. That when we could not get to you, you came to us. What an amazing love that is. And God, I pray for those that with you for a while. look for the better thing or the next thing, the easy season when we think you owe it to us. That we would remember that there has never been a moment when Jesus has been far from us as we've walked with you. And I pray that we would see him as good and glorious even in our hard moments. God, I would ask humbly this morning that you would refuse to allow us to ever grow indifferent to your love. That when the gospel message is proclaimed, Lord, that there would never be a time we hear it. Because what you did, God, it was far from ordinary. As you stepped into the world that you created to redeem it. What an amazing love. We give you all the praise and all the glory, Father. And we have the right to be your children. It's in Jesus' name.